Sinners, it's Monday morning. Welcome back to the Sin Everyday Podcast. I am your host, Bryce Reed. Thank you for joining me. I am on a quest to watch 366 movies in the year 2024. And this podcast is my weekly diary to track my progress on the uh, the road to completing this task. And I thank you so much if you've been joining me along the way. This is the third entry uh, as we are here in the third week of 2024. I am, I'm still so close to saying 2023 every single time. <laughs> I don't, I'll probably get over it in about December of this year. Uh, but so many movies uh, this week where the the Grand Turtle totals getting up there. I'm put. I'm I'm able to bank. I've been able to bank some days. I'm excited about having been able to bank some days uh, in the event that there's some type of emergency. But if not, you know, hopefully finishing this challenge before the end of the year, so that I'm not having to to post these in December at all. Hopefully, it would be really cool. Uh, but certainly not uh, uh, near the holidays. So I'm really trying to do what I can to protect myself while I can in just as many movies as possible. And I'm really enjoying it. When I first set out to do this show, was it mostly out of hubris? Probably, yeah. Uh, A desire to see more movies? Sure. Um... What I didn't expect was I have been really enjoying the pace. I I guess not really enjoying the pace of it because I've been banking so many days. Some of the days are kind of brutal, but um, I have been enjoying getting to take in so many stories. I think it's so easy to in the world that we live. I'm going to go off on a tangent before we get into the movies. You know, I like TV shows. I've seen the entire series of uh, different uh, shows like anybody else. And I like the uh, ability to spend a long time with a character and see them change over time. But I don't know that there's any story that needs that needs that much time. And as much as I've enjoyed some of the long-form series that I've uh, been able to witness in my time, I really have quite enjoyed at least once a day getting told a complete story. Um, You know, for the most part. I don't want it to sound like uh, every movie that I've watched has been like a a wonderfully uh, complete story or whatever, because certainly some of these uh, that I'm going to stumble upon or setting up for sequels or whatever. But for the most part, it's nice to be able to sit down and ingest a story in an hour and a half to three hours, whatever it is. I, I've really been trying to shy away from the things that go really well over two and a half hours. I think that's um, that's crazy, but there's like a couple of movies Right now, uh, Killers of the Flower Moon being one of them where people are like, oh, yeah, it's pretty good. It's just it's really, really long. And the uh, the excessive length of it has really, really turned me off to it. I uh, I'm not saying if you 
can't tell your story in two hours like you don't have a movie. Um, there are certainly longer form movies that I enjoy, although uh, it's worth noting I there are very few of them that I enjoy because they are so long. Um, but, um, but I've really been trying to stay away from them and and stay in things that are you know to top out at two and a half, um, because this uh, sort of modern lean towards three hours for a movie is um is crazy and i simply you know because this is a numbers based challenge um it's difficult for me to say oh yeah i'll watch this three hour movie unless i you know i've heard it's incredible and i should watch it then i'll watch it but it's difficult for me to sit down and say oh i should watch this three hour movie when in the same amount of time I could watch two hour and a half long movies and chances are there are enough hour and a half long movies that I haven't seen that are also really, really good that I would have just as good a time watching the two hour and a half movies and it would count double towards my goal of 366. This is to say that generally throughout the year, you should expect that I'll kind of favor shorter movies if I'm given the option. Um, because I, I know, first of all, I'll get a more distilled experience in most cases, but also it's just, you know, I'm going to spend a lot of time watching movies this year. And, uh, there are very few stories that I need to spend that much time on. To be quite honest, I'm going to silence my cell phone. That's my cell phone going off, by the way. I'm not just like popping fat boners over here, uh, while I'm talking to you about uh, short movies versus long movies. I want to get into the movies though that I watched this week. I watched quite a few. I was able to 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 stay ahead of the the seven day goal and bank some days, which I'm super excited about. And we're up to a nice round number heading into the fourth week, uh, the last week of January. It's daunting to look at it, to look at how much is left with how much year is left. But I have faith in the amount of days left in the math working out properly and in the amount of forward progress I've been able to make to not just stay above water, but to, uh, to push forward, um, as this challenge has gone on. Thankfully, I'm very excited about it. Um, the, I started out the week with parasite when I went to, uh, 2019's, uh, Parasite, a, a foreign film that won a ton of Academy Awards, um, to my recollection. Although, you know, don't hold it against me. When I went to Iron Claw last week, I got a ride to the place that I was sleeping from a friend of mine, and his girlfriend recommended Parasite. She said, Parasite, if you haven't seen Parasite, see Parasite. It's an incredible film. And so when I got back on Monday, I was like, what should I watch? I was like, oh, Parasite. It's on Max. And uh, I, this is not the first person that I've heard it's amazing from. Um, and it, it's an amazing film. I don't know that it personally connected. I mean, it's a five star because it's an amazing film. Is it a film that I'm like rushing out to get a copy of? No. Is it a film that I would necessarily be like, oh, you have to watch this to other people? No, I. it has a lot of very wonderful 
interesting points and ideas to make about um, the uh, the way that people in different classes look at one another um, and treat one another. And <laughs> I'm trying to dance around uh, revealing any part of what this movie is about because I think the less you know about it, the better, other than it's a, a, a movie about um, um, class relations. It's a foreign film. I watched the um, the subtitled version. I believe there is a dubbed version. I don't know if it's any good. But I watched the subtitled version. I watched it on Max. And I'm going to go into my notes here. Every, every time I watch a movie I am um, I write about it. I have a journal and I write about uh, I write what it is in the journal uh, the title of the movie when it was released the uh, the day that I watched it on and uh, what I rated it and where I watched it I did watch the movie on Max. I gave the movie five stars because I, you know, again, I, it's really, really good. Do I think that it's like, oh man, a new like uh, a favorite movie that I've seen, man? It was uh, um, no, I don't like it. It's honestly kind of an ugly film that shows uh, uh, a lot of things that I don't love, but it makes a lot of points that I think are really um, insightful about um, class relations. And it's interesting to see that these themes are so wildly universal um, that they're clear to me as a, a member of the Western audience, uh, despite this being from a completely uh, different country. And there's, um, there's a lot of humorous elements in the film there's a lot of fun to be had in the film. There's a uh, Tarantino-like uh, approach to violence in the film. I think if you're a Tarantino person and you don't mind um, subtitles and you haven't seen this film, you should watch this film uh, for sure because I really had a great time with it. Um, but, uh, you know, I'm not rushing back to watch it again <laughs> by any means because it was just, there's a lot of just, uh, uh, ugliness in it, you know, um, so much so that I, you know, the next day I was in need of antidotes, uh, from a movie perspective because I watched Parasite on Monday. And uh, I finished it, and I was kind of like that. I don't need. I don't really want to do more tonight because um, that was really good, but also just you know heavy in a way that I I wasn't expecting it to be, and and there was a lot to process. So I, I didn't watch another movie that day. But the, the next day, Tuesday, I got to work and was immediately sent home because of the snowstorm. So I had the whole day uh, to watch some movies, which was awesome. I was so I was honestly super excited. Um, so I went home 
And I got on Prime Video because I really hadn't watched a lot of stuff on Prime Video. And so I decided, oh, I'll have a Prime Video day. I'll watch some stuff on Prime Video that I haven't seen before. And then I ended up watching three movies on Prime. Um, I started with 1996's The Cable Guy. I'd never seen The Cable Guy. I, of course, love Jim Carrey, both as a, a dramatic actor and as a comedic actor. And uh, had never seen uh, The Cable Guy starring him and Matthew Broderick. Jack Black also plays in this movie, which I did not know. Had I known that there were several scenes where Jim Carrey and Jack Black act, you know, across from each other in a scene, uh, I would have made an effort to see this movie way earlier. Um, I had a lot of fun with this movie. Uh, I think it's a good movie. Do I think it's a great movie? Yeah. Uh, you know? Uh, I was, I would say, uh, I was expecting it to be a lot worse from an age, you know, mid nineties comedies are like, we'll see, you know, how this turns out. Um, but I really enjoyed the cable guy, uh, mostly because it wasn't quite the film I was expecting it to be. It turns into like a psychological, um, like thriller Matthew Broderick plays um, really a jerk. I would say that's the biggest thing about the movie that I feel like is kind of a misstep is I, I didn't find Matthew Broderick's character likable at any point. I found him very um, self-absorbed, self-centered. He cared really only about himself and what he was going through. And it certainly might have been what the movie was intending, but there were several points in the movie. The basic plot is that Jim Carrey plays a cable guy um, who comes by and immediately feels a kinship with uh, Matthew Broderick and their relationship develops to a point that Matthew Broderick finds uncomfortable with uh, uh, Jim Carrey's character, who's a bit of an obsessive. And the thing turns into, uh, you know, Matthew, Matthew Broderick feels as though his life is being manipulated in a way that is inappropriate from a friendship perspective. And that's absolutely the case. Uh, Jim Carrey's character uh, makes a couple of really sort of massive missteps uh in India, the process of trying to uh, to retain Matthew Broderick's character as a friend, despite the fact that he's really a lousy one to begin with. Uh, and it really puts some strain on their relationship. Um, but I think the movie had a lot of very interesting things to say about uh, how people treat one another and, uh, specifically in this sort of like through the lens of this sort of autism, um, this greater understanding of autism that we have now as a society, it's, uh, it was really funny to go back and watch this movie in particular. And they do a sequence at medieval times. Which, if you've never been to Medieval Times, it's a, a dinner theater chain here in uh, 
in America. They have a number of them, and uh, you go in, and it's a, a themed uh, uh, dinner theater show with uh, uh, it's medieval themed. You know, so you go in there and you eat a big turkey leg and they uh, joust. It's honestly, having been before, it's fucking rad. The movie almost does it justice, but not really. Um, And again, it's filled with just snarky ass comments from Matthew Broderick's character the entire time. And I'm like, but if you're not trying to have a good time, why you come here? Huh? What's going on? I it was I found his character to be almost like a David Spade. Uh, in Tommy Boy type, but uh, not clever enough to be likable. I found him fiercely unlikable throughout the throughout the plot. So when Jim Carrey, who was fiercely likable throughout the plot, uh, made missteps in the name of uh, trying to keep Matthew Broderick as a friend, despite the fact that he fucking sucks, um. It was, I almost felt like I was on, like the movie was forcing me to be on the wrong side. And unfortunately, I feel like that's maybe just the Jim Carrey problem is that he's so entertaining to watch that uh, I'm on his side even when I shouldn't be. Um, But all in all, blast to watch. It was cool to see Jim Carrey take like kind of a turn in a way that, uh, I hadn't really seen him before with such a a strange sort of like a dark side to a character with the exception of maybe like the Riddler. I don't know. Um, But after that, I watched Step Brothers. I'd never seen Step Brothers before. Step Brothers, of course, starring um, Will Ferrell and uh, John C. Riley together as a duo the way God intended. Uh, And it came out in 2008. I think also Ted's dad from Bill and Ted plays a role in this movie. I think that's who it is. One of the, who's playing the father, which is amazing. And uh, I really enjoyed Step Brothers. I also watched Step Brothers on Prime on the 16th. And uh, I'm saying four stars for Step Brothers. What can I tell you about Step Brothers? Step Brothers, the the general gist of the plot is that uh, <laughs> uh, a man and a woman, they fall in love, and it turns out, uh, they fall in love at a, a business conference, and it turns out that the woman has a 40-year-old son who's living at home, and the man also has a 40-year-old son who's living at home. And they are both in a deep state of arrested development. Um, Absolutely just uh, giant man children. And suddenly uh, the couple, they get married. And the the two kids have to learn to coexist. The two giant adult kids played by John C. Riley and Will Ferrell have to learn to coexist. Um, uh, You know, alongside a couple of other kooky characters uh and finding out things about themselves it's a, the pl- the script is an excuse for will ferrell and john c Riley to uh improv while acting as children as giant children uh which is it's worth the price of admission alone if you're looking for a silly movie to watch 
on a on a Tuesday afternoon. Um, I don't think you can go wrong with uh, with Step Brothers from two thousand and eight. Uh, I was leery of the movie because the premise of the movie is is really lazy. Um, but I was pleasantly surprised by how much I enjoyed the movie, both from a plot perspective and then just from a, yeah, it's funny to watch those two, uh, joke around and have some fun on the screen for a little while, uh, in the, the sort of prime of the, uh, Apatow feral, um, connection, Adam McKay, feral Apatow situation that was going on there. Uh, John C. Riley too included. Uh, I then watched uh, Fire and Ice from 1983. Fire and Ice, uh, a feature-length production from the Ralph Bakshi Company, legendary artist Ralph Bakshi. Uh, if you're unaware of Ralph Bakshi, uh, he's a very cult artist. A couple of uh, he's done a bunch of things. I don't know if any like Fire and Ice is kind of his most one of his most notable movies. Um. Old, like, rotoscoped fantasy style drawing. If you don't know what rotoscoping is, it's when you um, you go out and you shoot a scene. And then you have an animator. Uh, they, they project the scene onto a, a drawing surface and the animator traces over uh, what's shot. And so you get this very human, realistic looking movement and animation and it's a a a technique originally developed by the Fleischer company uh when they were doing um Superman and Popeye and things of that nature and uh that's why you, a lot you get this sort of like very interesting fluidity to a lot of those uh old 30s and 40s Fleischer cartoons and that's all present here in Fire and Ice too and Fire and Ice is this um high fantasy uh deal kind of dungeons and dragons uh, uh situation going on here and the plot i found to be completely incomprehensible um to this thing but the atmosphere was enjoyable and the animation was really pretty to look at you're not going to see something like this made now and there's only a handful of mo- a handful of movies i think kind of ever that have this really gorgeous style to them. So I was really happy to, uh, to sit down and watch this thing. It really wasn't that long. And I watched it, uh, on prime video. I would say three stars for it. If you're a fan of just seeing a movie that looks different than what you've seen before necessarily, then I I definitely think it's worth uh, checking out, especially if you're into, um, uh, fantasy stuff specifically. And you're looking for something that feels, um, like a piece of fantasy art, which this movie absolutely does. Uh, on Wednesday I had the day off and, uh, I immediately set about to watch our Tubi movie of the week that was picked by the wheel last week, which is, uh, two thousands, Ready to Rumble. Uh, Ready to Rumble stars 
former WCW heavyweight champion uh, David Arquette. Um, and the other guy, I'm, I'm trying to remember the other guy. I'm curious. I'm going to look it up. Who is... Uh... Oh, Scott Camp. I think it's Scott Kane is the other guy in the movie. He plays the other friend in the movie. Yep. Scott can, um, Scott can's most notable acting credit would probably be. He played one of the two brothers in oceans 11. Other than that, it's a lot of TV work and this movie particular in, in particular, this movie is like, it's, it feels like a bill and Ted rip. There's a lot of sort of Bill and Ted DNA in it. They're both very good friends. They seem like they're stoners, but weed or drugs are never specifically brought up or referenced. Um, even alcohol, not really brought up or referenced all that much. Sex, sure. Yeah, there's an interest in in women um, from both of them. Uh, and hoping that that's not like studio fuckery of like case in the not gays stuff which is kind of uh the case for uh for bill and ted maybe the biggest uh detraction one can make from from bill and ted is uh it's uh insistence to remind the audience that hey they're just friends bud uh and this movie has uh, probably a bit of that too to an unfortunate degree but instead of uh traveling back in time in a uh a time machine to finish a history report. Instead, uh, David Arquette's Gordy and Scott Cans Sean are best friends who just love pro wrestling and particularly love <laughs> this character named Jimmy King. Jimmy King is played by Oliver Oliver Platt, and he's not a real pro wrestler. What's really bizarre about this is. It's like a semi-fictionalized version of wrestling. Oliver Platt's character, Jimmy King, doesn't exist. Uh, Joey Pants's uh, character of Titus Sinclair, who is uh, the uh, the promoter of this world's wrestling organization, also doesn't exist. But the promotion that he runs is wcw like straight up wcw with the logos and everything and a lot of the wrestlers who participate in joey pants's uh, uh league are real wrestlers diamond dallas page bill goldberg sting um all making appearances in this movie as well as uh, several others so it's kind of weird the, how, like what Parts of it are chosen to be fictionalized. What parts of it are not chosen to be fictionalized. And I guess that's kind of a meta commentary on wrestling itself. You know, that like some of it's really happening and, and, but a lot of it's not just kind of interesting. I guess I hadn't thought about it that way. And I think, um, yeah, I, I enjoyed the spirit. Of the movie, you know, like Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure is my favorite movie of all time. I think the script is so amazing, so funny, so perfect, and it just feels so good to watch that movie. 
And this really managed to properly scratch the itch for me. Um, they were a little sort of rougher around the edges, Scott Cannon and, and, and David Arquette's character, Gordy and Sean, but, uh, but it still really got that, that sort of like Bill and Ted feel to it, which I loved. And then on top of that, I really liked that the story was about, um, Sean and Gordy. They, uh, they love this, uh, dude, Jimmy King, Jimmy King gets, uh, sort of disgraced and knocked out of the, uh, the league and they go and find their hero and kind of, um, you know, through their fandom, through their support, through their desire to help him out, they sort of nurse his broken ego back to health. And it of course ends in a giant, uh, wrestling match with everybody being involved. I thought that the movie had good, funny bits, even if they were very, very nineties. Um, and I thought it had a lot of really funny things to say and interesting, cool things to say. There's a point where Joey Panza's character, um, he's like, ah, how dare you come up against me? Like I made uh, wrestling and there's a, uh, David Arquette has this really wonderful line where he's like, you didn't make wrestling. We made wrestling, the fans. Like that's everybody in this room. Like without these people in this room, you don't have anything. You have a, you have nothing, you know? And he's right. And it was really cool to see that kind of uh, subtext brought to the forefront uh, in the movie. And I really, I really enjoyed this movie probably more than I should have. It's a, a four stars for me. I freaking really like this movie. Uh, and it was really just what I needed. Something, you know, something that wasn't uh, going to ask too much of me, just have a good time and, uh, and enjoy the friendship of these two characters. It can be fun just to watch people who seem like real genuine friends on screen, having fun, you know, um, that I enjoy that pretty much across the board, always in movies. Um, after ready to rumble, like I said, I had to, um, I had the day off. So I watched two. Movies on the 17th. Um, I watched movie number 25 of this challenge, which was Black Dynamite from 2009. I'd never seen Black Dynamite. Black Dynamite in sort of a... I feel like I watched it kind of at the wrong time. I feel like if I had watched this movie in 2009, I would have thought it was fucking hilarious. Unfortunately, I'm now in 2024... And it's not that the movie's aged poorly. It really hasn't. It's still a, you know, a pretty decent send up of, um, black exploitation flicks. The problem is that black exploitation flicks had kind of already done this to themselves. Like they didn't need a scary movie of black exploitation flicks. <laughs> Cause you already had Rudy Ray Moore movies and stuff, you know, like at this point I've unfortunately been spoiled by the things that this movie apes, but I think maybe doesn't do quite as well. Like the the movie's funny, but there's not, there's no point in the movie that is as funny as some of the stuff in the original Dolomite movie or Petey Wheatstraw, the devil's son-in-law. Um, you know, movies I've at this point seen that are fucking side splittingly hilarious and are easily, you know, 
20 years older than this movie. Um, it, you know, if not 30. So I'm, it was tough for me to sit back and um, sort of ingest this thing at face value because it's, it, it was like m- making jokes that, you know, had, had already been done. And, and, and I could feel throughout the thing. I was like, it's not like they haven't watched these movies. They were kind of banking on the fact that like, um, you know, people wouldn't have necessarily had access to those things. So they can kind of like make jokes about those movies. And most people will assume that they're like kind of new jokes and they're not. Um, unfortunately, um, I think everybody did a pretty good job and I think it does a good job of, of sort of retreading that material. But at this point, unfortunately I watched things in the wrong order. And I think, um, had I watched black dynamite and then gone back and watched, um, Dolomite and, um, (laughs) Petey Wheatstraw and stuff like that, I would have been like, Oh, you know, this is great. Like this was actually happening way earlier, but unfortunately I, I watched black dynamite after having watched those movies and it didn't do much for me. That being said, I think the movie again accomplishes the goal that it's set to set out. Um, and is three stars. It's good. There's no question that it's good, but is it great? Like, no, if I wanted to show somebody a ridiculous, silly black exploitation film, I would show them Dolomite or maybe even Dolomite is my name, which came out a couple of years ago, starring Eddie Murphy. Um, the biopic version of the Rudy Ray Moore story that is also hilarious in its own right. So, um, yeah, uh, that I watched black dynamite on prime. It's worth going to see if you're looking for, um, for a, a sort of rip roaring, uh, black exploitation parody. I think there were a number of jokes in it. I thought were very, very funny. Um, but definitely go. Yeah. Give it a shot. Uh, number 26, which I watched the following day on the 18th. Right. On the 19th. Hmm. Interesting. I'm I'm looking at my notes here. I'm a little confused. Did I just not watch anything? Maybe I watched something really late. Maybe we'll check this out. We're going to get to the bottom of this. I'm trying to figure out. Okay. No, I'm confused. Oh, <laughs> All right. Yeah. So I did end up watching a movie on the 18th. And it was this movie. It was Moulin Rouge that I watched on the 18th. Um, and I maybe I have it listed as the 18th on my card, but in my diary, it's listed as the 19th, even though I think what the situation was is I didn't get around to starting the movie until like 11. Um, and as a result, uh, the movie didn't finish until like 1 a.m. Uh, so technically I watched it on the 18th, but uh, in reality, it was the movie that I watched. Uh, it ended up being logged on the 19th. 
But Moulin Rouge from 2001, I watched on the the 18th, and uh, I think this is a three star movie. I which uh, I had a number of uh, women in my life, close women in my life, uh, be astounded by the fact that I th- I thought it was three stars. Um, I historically have been a big fan of uh, of Baz Luhrmann. I loved Elvis with the exception of one really bizarre performance from Tom Hanks. But I, I wasn't surprised because I've yet to see a Tom Hanks performance that I thought was good, to be honest. Um, but maybe I, we've got a long year ahead of us. So perhaps I, by the end of this year, I will have seen a Tom Hanks performance that I thought was any good at all. Um, besides maybe, I don't know, Woody, does that count? Um, and uh, Moulin Rouge was the first Baz Luhrmann film that I've seen where I was like, oh, this is why people don't like Baz Luhrmann movies. Um, there's a number of things he does in this. The direction in this movie is is uh, disorienting, to say the least. It's tough, man. Uh, you have to be fucking in for it. Um, I think Elvis skirts this line a little more, makes it a little more bearable. It just feels more at home with the character. This is like, there's so many like weirdo collage composite shots. It's like the movie is trying to attack you, uh, from behind the screen, which can kind of work. I, I watched this on a DVD that I got, um, for a dollar from a goodwill. Um, I said, Moulin Rouge, that's a movie that I've heard of before. I should grab that. Um, and I did, and it's been sitting in my, I have like a pile set aside from my collection of movies. Uh, I have like a pile of movies that I own, but haven't watched yet so that every time I walk by them, I will be shamed by their mere existence set aside staring at me. Uh, and I put in Moulin Rouge and, uh, Moulin Rouge on top of that is not just a jukebox musical. For those unaware, a jukebox musical is when you take a, a, a number of, uh, already established pop songs and you make a musical out of them. Um, and you know, you change lyrics here and there every now and then. um, but uh, for the most part, it's usually done with uh, one artist's songs. I have to imagine for licensing purposes, it's usually done this way. Moulin Rouge is not that. Moulin Rouge is instead a jukebox musical made of just a number of pop songs, like well-known pop songs. There's a part in this where in a, a just wildly... Uh, uh, I'm trying to remember. A wildly horny Nicole Kidman. That's who it was. I kept thinking it was somebody else, but it's not. It's Nicole Kidman. Uh, Is in a room with Ewan McGregor. And Ewan McGregor is spoken word style reciting 
the lyrics to your song and Nicole Kidman is having an orgasm in front of him. Um, it's wild. It's really crazy stuff, to be honest. And uh, not only is this a jukebox musical, it's made even more disorienting by the fact that it takes place seemingly in like 1900s France, maybe like 18 mid 1800s. And so uh, it's the mid 1800s, but all of these pop songs are being used. Beatles uh, references constantly. Elton John is referenced. Queen is referenced. Um, uh, Nirvana is referenced. But then beyond that, the songs aren't, it's not even like, oh, and then they sing your song and your song is, is this big pivotal number in the show. Instead, it's like the song starts out as your song and then it becomes smells like teen spirit. And then it's like your song is sung as a descant over smells like teen spirit, like really like legitimate mashup stuff going on. And it's it the movie legit while this like very Baz Luhrmann like aggressive directing style is going on and the whole thing seems like an exercise in how to disorient the viewer as much as possible um by you you don't know what time period it is uh everything seems like weirdly hyper real they start out the show by saying they're going to write a musical and then the music that Ewan McGregor's character writes for the musical is the opening number to the sound of music. But the play that they're composing is not the sound of music. It's a different play. And the whole thing is just like, you don't know where you are. You don't know where you're going. You like any sort of tangible thing that you could grab onto as a viewer is not quite as you remember it is perverted and it's like a dream it's like a dream where when you're in a dream and you try and read something you know and you open a book and the letters just they don't make sense they're gibberish or whatever that's what this movie felt like to watch to me um that said it's three stars because i feel like it's pretty well made for what it is although a lot of the composite shots look like shit now um but <laughs> I didn't get it. I think that that's the biggest thing I guess that I should say is that I didn't get it. It was uh, uh just so many bizarre choices and and choices seemingly made for the sake of being bizarre. There's a a, a character death that the whole show kind of hinges on that is like barely explained and from the symptoms that you see you kind of, one would assume that it's to, supposed to be tuberculosis, but you're also you're in this like weirdo fantasy world where people are singing uh, pop songs that won't be written for another hundred years at each other, and you know, yeah, this person seemingly has tuberculosis, but they're also coughing in other people's faces, and those people aren't getting sick, so it's probably not tuberculosis. And instead just seems like vague. This character needs to die. So we've invented a disease for her to have. That said, I, the song, the movie has the line that everybody loves. The uh, uh, greatest thing you'll ever learn is uh, 
how to love and be loved in return, right? Which is a beautiful line. And I think they use it effectively. And I think the love story is very good. I think the performances are very good. Um, and I, you know, again, a lot like fire and ice, uh, you won't see another movie that is quite like this one. Um, so it's worth searching out if you like musicals and you somehow missed this one the way that I did. Um, I really, uh, I had an interesting time with it is what I would say. Um, yeah, definitely search it out. Um, we have made it to Friday. And on Friday, I went at, on my way home from work, I stopped over at the Bull Moose. The intention of just getting the new Green Day album on vinyl, which I did. Uh, but while I was there, I was like, I'll buy some movies for the weekend so that I have some movies to watch on the weekend. And uh, I started... I found a 4K UHD Blu-ray um, steelbook copy of the Texas Chainsaw Massacre from 1974, the original Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Um, a name that I hear cinephile types bring up all the time as being not just uh, a great horror film, but a, a, a specifically sort of like great movie overall or a movie that they really love. Uh, you know, again, like really kind of big swing and a miss for me. Um, and it wasn't cheap either to get the 4K. And I don't think the 4K looks that good either, which I don't know what they filmed this movie on, but I think it's a, um, I don't think it looks good. Uh, this movie has been, you know, as a franchise, the Texas Chainsaw Massacre has been used and fucking abused. Uh, it has a sequel that nobody likes. As far as I can tell, it has been remade at least twice. Um, I was really kind of bummed with the, first of all, it ought to be called the fucking Texas mallet massacre because he kills most of the people in the movie with a mallet. He only kills one guy with a chainsaw. It's kind of fucking bullshit to be honest. And then the movie's full of like hokey dumb stuff too. Um, which I wasn't expecting. I was, expe you know, and it's difficult because you probably won't see me review a lot of um, horror movies on the channel. Horror movies don't really work for me. I've found historically, I mean, they, they kind of used to when I was a child. Um, but I don't viscerally feel movies empathetically in the way that I, I feel like you kind of maybe must to enjoy horror and i have uh, on several occasions like kind of sat down with people who enjoy horror and they're watching a horror movie and and whatever and been asked like yeah what do you think and i've been like i you know like honestly like i thought it was kind of dumb and uh their response is like like oh yeah but like imagine like if you were in that situation and i'm like yeah but i wouldn't be like this situation it's preposterous and uh it's like uh silly and it's a movie too like it it doesn't it can't hurt you you know so like i'm not afraid of like some shit that happens on a tv screen for the most part you know like i'm more afraid of you know uh 
science science fiction concepts that seem eerily close to where we're headed as we'll we'll sort of get to um when we talk about the next movie but uh uh, texas chainsaw massacre it was that's a stupid movie it's really dumb it's based on at least a, a reasonably true story um of this guy, I can't remember the name, but immediately upon like sort of reading up on the movie, it's like, oh yeah, it's based on this real guy, um, who was a serial killer who uh, made uh, furniture out of people's uh, skin and shit. Um, and uh, so there's that element to it, and that's kind of creepy. But like the research that I do after having seen your movie shouldn't be scarier than the movie. That I that you made that I saw, um, <laughs> it was really. I was really disappointed. They spend the whole like <clears throat> first half of the movie, at least, like getting you acquainted with these characters. Um, I would say acquainted is the best word that I could use because they don't give you any reason to like any of them. I don't think um, they don't really give you any reason to know any of them. There's one guy that's in a wheelchair and his only character trait is that he's fucking annoying um, and everybody is annoyed by him. And then there's two other teenagers who are in a relationship and their primary interest is uh, fucking, you know, which is fine, but it's also like whatever. Um, And then uh, there's this other nerdy guy who's like a third wheel guy and, uh, basically everyone that they encounter before the end of the movie is uh, part of a, uh, a family of uh, murdering psychopaths. And then, uh, you know, the movie kind of abruptly comes to an end uh, when one of the characters finally manages to escape. It's a famous movie. It's a, it's got a hell of a title. And uh, I assume in 1974 when this came out, it would have been maybe kind of a sight to see, given whatever else was happening at the time. Um, but I thought it kind of sucked. Uh, and I, you know, honestly, I gave it two stars because I I've been told it's great by horror people. And I felt like maybe it just wasn't for me. So, okay. Was as low as I was willing to give it, but it was also about as high as I was willing to give it. And if I was being honest about my personal feelings about the film, it's probably a one star all day. Um, and the further away I get from the film, the more I'm like, man, that movie kind of blows and not even in a way that I, like I objected to its existence, just that I, Perhaps even worse than that, I found a movie about a man who murders people with a chainsaw to be pretty boring and silly. Um, So, uh, kind of a bummer on the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, you know. And everyone I've talked to since have been has been like, "Yeah, the original it's uh, it's not great. Maybe the remakes are, but at this point, I've been burned so much by the original. It's gonna be a long time before I want to watch the remake. Maybe I'll do a lot more horror movies in October, though. We'll have to see." where we are when we get there, to be honest, because we're banking days, baby. We're getting things done over here. Movie number 28. Um, I picked up on a, uh, uh, on DVD at that same time that I bought, um, 
Texas Chainsaw Massacre on 4K. I bought Soylent Green on DVD. Uh, I had never seen this movie all the way through. I think it's absolutely a movie that people should watch all the way uh, through. People should seek out and watch. I don't know where it's streaming or if it's streaming, but I bought it on a DVD and it's a four star for me all day. And let me explain to you why. I love movies where the future is suggest- suggested by uh, by anybody uh, and specifically um, visions of the future now have kind of leveled out and been, uh, they're like lame now. Um, but visions of the future that like predate the ubiquity of the internet and what the internet would become are so wildly they're crazy. Like nobody knows what they're seeing. Um, and the unfortunate, the, the really fucking funny thing about this movie, which came out in 1973, but takes place in 2022 is all of the things that they're right about. Now they sort of prophesize things being a lot worse, uh, things being a lot more scarce. Uh, and, um, while these things didn't come to pass in 2022, it's not crazy to assume that these things might, that a lot of these things might have come to pass by 2050, 2060. Um, you know, food is incredibly scarce. Everybody's relying on basically a meal replacement supplement, um, company called Soylent. Um, of course the movie's very old. Everybody knows the line. Soil and green, it's made out of people, right? It's people. Um, uh, you know, but I think the movie has a lot to say about what can come of just like wanton uh, capitalism and uh, watching it sort of in the death throes uh, and has a lot of interesting suggestions about the future and not all of them are wrong. Now, it's hilarious when it's supposed to be 222 and one of the characters in their opulent home has like a, a big eggshell looking thing and they're playing a video game on it. And the video game is like space invaders level of uh, complicated, you know, it's it, wrong. Like they're, they're wildly wrong about things like they're wrong down to the point where like the television is not a focal point of anybody's uh, uh, set up or whatever, you know, like there's a bunch of stuff that's just like, huh? Uh, but there's a lot of stuff that's right. You know, they're not, they don't feel obligated to throw in a bunch of like flying cars. You know what I mean? And stuff like that. And it turns out that was a, the smart move. You know, there's a, a part in the movie where they talk about how like books aren't really printed anymore. Are we there yet? No. Are we approaching there? it's different than it used to be. That's for sure. You know? So, um, yeah, I thought it, there are certain movies, you know, and I was talking to a friend while I was watching it and he was like, Oh yeah, I saw that movie when I was a kid. I probably shouldn't have seen it. And I'm like, no, I, I think kids probably really should see this movie. It teaches them this sort of like natural, uh, uh, distrust of just letting themselves be governed by corporations and, uh, and it has a lot of really wonderful, subtle ways of saying it and a lot of 
interesting things to say about like sort of patriarchy culture, like women in the future are literally, you know, kind of referred to as furniture and you buy this fancy apartment and it comes with a beautiful woman kind of included with the apartment um, who is like a, 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 a like a bang made basically uh which again is just a more cautionary tale about like sort of like rampant uh unchecked wanton patriarchy uh and uh yeah a, a lot of really interesting things to say for a movie that's so old and that's what's so fascinating about watching science fiction movies from this era prophesizing about the future and when they do that and the future is this fucking bleak and also this not far off from where things are, um, it's hard. It's hard. It's a hard thing to watch, uh, in kind of, uh, kind of the best and scariest way, you know, movie number 29, which I watched on the 20th, uh, just yesterday on prime. Uh, 3,000 Years of Longing. Tilda Swinton stars in 3,000 Years of Longing alongside uh, Idris Elba, who plays a, a djinn or a genie. He comes forth uh, from the bottle. She picks up the bottle in an antique shop or whatever. It's not really important. But she ends up opening the bottle, and the bottle contains Idris Elba, who's a genie. Um, and Tilda Swinton is, uh, her occupation, her character's occupation is that she's like a, a storytelling anthropologist or whatever. She like studies stories and, uh, what they mean and the connections between them or whatever. And, uh, she, you know, a genie comes out of this bottle and, uh, she's, a reticent to uh, make any of the wishes that she's required to make. It's pretty standard fare, three wishes, blah, 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 right? But she's reticent to do any of it because uh, she uh, assumes that the genie is uh, here to uh, to play some tricks or whatever on her. And, um, and the genie, as a way of uh, uh, trying to prove that he's trustworthy, kind of like goes back and tells her uh, the stories of uh, uh, previous uh, people that he's had and um, his uh, run-ins with the Sheba and King Solomon and all of these things. And it's, uh, you know, kind of fascinating, especially, you know, I got, and it, it made me think while I was watching the movie, it's like, I you know, I started this challenge in the interest of hearing stories, like getting to hear a story every day and see a story every day. And this movie was like a treasure trove for that. I found it so fun to watch for that purpose. Everything that happens while they're still in that hotel room is great. He gets to the end of telling his stories. She's still like, I don't want to do it. And he's like, dude, if you don't, I got to go back in the bottle for another thousand years. It's going to fucking suck. Please just make a three fucking wishes. It's not that hard. You've been a baby about this. And then she's like, okay, I have an idea if your answer is no that's fine but like i'd love to get fucked by a genie or whatever and fall in love with me you know and uh 
and just ha- would you be my uh, my lover, you know? And they do. Uh, it's wild. And then uh, the movie kind of careens off a cliff, unfortunately. Really, bu- it it really bummed me out because like it seemed like they had a really solid first act up until the point where she's like, I don't know. Wish number one, we could smash, I guess. Um, and unfortunately, it's really from there. It seems like they don't really have any ideas. Uh, they become a couple, and uh, the the they get back to London, and the genie has some weird reaction to electromagnetic fields or something like that, which is like a weird sci-fi concept in a movie that doesn't really need it. And then, um. <laughs> I'm trying to I'm trying to think of what happens next. Um, he develops some sort of sickness from being in the world too long, or whatever, or being outside of the bottle, or and not visiting the other genies. They suggest that there's some society of genies or whatever that he has to go visit, and he can only come back once in a while. And um, yeah, I you know you kind of leave the movie being like, okay, but why though? Like it seems like a whole lot of just like random uh but here's why you can't be together stuff was thrown thrown in there at the end um with like kind of no pacing and it feels like the movie just kind of ends uh unfortunately which uh really soured me on the whole experience i the first half of the movie i was like fucking in man i was like this is awesome this is so much fun um getting to hear all these stories by this genie and intercell does a great job. And of course, Tilda Swinton is Tilda Swinton. She's lovely. Um, and the performances are really good, but I, I like the movie gets to the point where it wants to get to. And then it, like, it kind of falls apart at the seams. Unfortunately, it feels like there was at least a half an hour of just additional story that they cut for time or whatever. I don't know, but like, Things kind of happen for unmotivated reasons. And uh, it's really the first time I've, or not the first time, but the first time in a long time I've seen a movie that was like so otherwise well-made, but then was just like, but wait, what happened with the fucking story here? That's nuts. Um, the, the 30th movie, which I watched earlier today on the 21st, of January was uh walk the line. Uh, I'm only familiar with walk the line through uh, uh walk hard, the Dewey Cox story, which uh, borrows heavily from walk the line and is really a parody of walk the line and Ray mostly, um, which Ray I've seen before, but I hadn't seen walk the line and walk the line was on max. So I figured I would watch it. Um, I think, I think that last movie was on Max too. No, that was on Prime. Uh, uh, Three thousand years of longing, twenty twenty two, was on Prime. Uh, three stars for that movie uh, because I, I really did love the first half. But Walk the Line um, is a two star film for me. It's okay. Uh, I think the movie gets way too bogged down in talking about uh, Johnny Cash and how he did drugs and 
On top of that, it's about Johnny Cash and and his wife June and like their relationship. But they they both kind of meet under like not great circumstances. Like they're both adulterers basically, and um, it made me genuinely not really interested in seeing their relationship flourish. And and, and it's probably the truth, but like framing the story around it being a love story when that's the case made it really difficult for me to connect with either character moving forward. And the love story is maybe just not the angle I would have taken in this movie. And yet it's like the centerpiece of this movie. And that's not to say that the music isn't featured, but it's very rarely talked about. And instead, most of the movie focuses on drug addiction and like the relationship between Johnny and June and I I can't help but feel like the the fucking camera is pointed at the wrong thing. Um you know, there's only like I I get it. He fucking did drugs. Like whatever, you know? I'm here it, if I sat down at a table for 2 hours, if I got to have lunch with Johnny Cash for 2 hours. Do you know how much of our conversation would be about his drug addiction? Fucking 0% of it. Who cares? Like, I uh, bring it up, you know, certainly as a motivator for things. But, like, even if it was really bad, and clearly uh, this movie wanted to make the point that it was really bad, um, can we fucking talk about the music? Like, that's what I want to hear about. From Johnny Cash. I don't really care that he fucking couldn't manage alcohol very well and was popping pills and shit. Like, whatever, dude. Like, that's, you know, not great behavior or whatever, I guess, if you want to focus on that. But, like, I'm over here, like, tell me about the songs, you know? Like, they show Johnny Cash in this movie. You'd think he only ever cut one record. He's in the studio one time in the whole movie and it's like at the beginning and then the rest of it, he's on the road and they, they never really show him back in the studio, which is really fucking weird, man. And yeah, I I mean, Joaquin Phoenix does a Joaquin Phoenix performance. He's uh, great to the degree that he's great, but like, he's also, he's Joaquin Phoenix. Like he, I, I don't know that I've ever seen Joaquin Phoenix disappear into a role the way that some people claim to see that they see him do. He's always just kind of, you know, um, he got Johnny Cash's mannerisms mostly right. It's a pretty good imitation of Johnny Cash. It's a good performance from him. Um, you know, and I think generally across the board, the performances are really good, but it is just like, it's here we have, you know, this and, and the musical biopics, I love musical biopics traditionally. I, it's like a superhero movie where the power is music and I love that, but, uh, they get dogged on a lot and they've gotten a lot better about some of the things that this movie sucks at. Over the years, <laughs> they focus less on drugs, although it's still a huge problem where it's like, you'd think this person was famous for doing drugs when they're not. They're famous for writing amazing music. Like, can we fucking talk about the music? Like, whatever, dude. Um, and then it's always, you know, a, a, a lot of times the entire third act is fiction. 
uh, of <laughs> yeah, the fucking Queen movie, the entire fucking third act is fiction. With the exception of they played Live Aid. That actually happened. Um, but the rest of it is like, it's nonsense. Um, and, uh, and uh, you know, on top of the, usually the, the things that they make up, um, they just, it's, uh, it's always uh, just, you know, hearts in the wrong place for these movies. And, and uh, when they do make things up, they're not as interesting as the truth. And they always hide behind this idea of like, well, you know, it's a movie. So we had to make it, you know, we had to make these changes in order to benefit the narrative. But like the Queen movie being a prime example, the true story that they didn't tell in order to tell their version of the story that is like, it's not as good as if they had just told the truth. And I don't believe that because it's a movie, you had to change these like huge elements I feel like you could have just fucking told the truth. You chose not to because you felt like the whole cloth fiction that you made up was better than the true story. And in a lot of cases, it's fucking not. And I'm sure this movie's riddled with it too. It's like a Hollywood disease when it comes to biopics. It's like, I why would, if I didn't want to know the actual story of what happened with Johnny Cash, why the fuck am I going to see a movie about Johnny Cash? Why, why wouldn't I just not see the movie if I didn't want to know what actually happened with Johnny Cash? It's a bit of false advertising, to be honest. And I fucking hate when movies do it. I even didn't really like, you know, Iron Claw. We watched Iron Claw last week. And uh, in the Iron Claw, they, one of the Von Erich brothers is not present. They just didn't show him in the movie because he committed suicide in a, a pretty similar fashion to one of his other brothers who committed suicide. And they felt like, Oh, it's just, it's repeating the same story element or whatever, which is like, whatever. But it's also like, you know, I, I I'd like you to just one time, just tell the fucking truth. You know, if you're going to come out here and say, Oh, the, you know, if the attraction to the movie is that you're telling me something that really happened, tell me what really happened. You know, and I understand that, like, it's difficult. It's the whole Rashomon thing, you know, like humans are kind of incapable of understanding the truth because everything is colored by perspective or whatever, you know, but at least tell me a character's version of the truth and a character in that case wouldn't have forgotten about one of the brothers, um, you know, nor would uh, this entire subplot about like Freddie Mercury breaking up a band or whatever. This movie's this show is not about Bohemian Rhapsody and how much it uh, let me down. It's about Walk the Line. I didn't do any research into how bad Walk the Line fucked with what actually happened with Johnny Cash, mostly because I didn't like the movie much to begin with. To be honest, I felt like it focused on the most boring parts of his life for me personally. I really don't care that the man did drugs. I get that the man did drugs. That's, you know, him and everybody else. <laughs> so, I, you know, how about we focus on the remarkable things like the fucking incredible music that he made. Um, and this movie didn't want to do that. Instead, it wanted to focus on uh, him doing drugs and cheating on his wife. Which I'm like, dude, like, okay. Uh, two stars for this movie. It's okay. I honestly think the further I get away from it, 
I think with the benefit of like waiting a week before I rated things, it'd probably be a one star. I don't like this movie at all. Um, it's on Max. You can go and check it out if you want. I would recommend watching Walk Hard, the Dewey Cox story instead. It's a much better movie in every way. It's actually entertaining. Um, and uh, uh, But that uh, brings us to the end of the movies for the week. The best movie that I watched this week was Parasite. Uh, Parasite was the only five-star movie of the week. Which leads us to our 366 championship. We're at 30 movies, by the way, at the end of the third week. We're making great pace. I'm super excited about it. But uh, it leads us to our 366 championship. As people know, every week uh, I take the best movie and I put it up against the best movie so far. And the 366 championship right now is the beekeeper. Um I think I would be hard-pressed to say that Parasite is not a better movie than The Beekeeper, although I wouldn't be hard-pressed to say um, that I enjoyed watching The Beekeeper quite a bit more than I enjoyed watching Parasite. And despite the fact that any cinephile listening to this podcast might grill me alive for saying so, uh, I'm keeping Beekeeper at the 366 for another week as the champion uh, because I had just such a fucking blast watching that movie and parasite, uh, was great and had a lot of cool things to say. Um, but if you sat me down right now and said, re- you can rewatch parasite or you can rewatch the beekeeper. I'm going beekeeper a hundred times out of a hundred. So uh, the champion still after, after one week, the 366 champion is still the beekeeper. Starring Jason Statham. Probably still in theaters. See it in IMAX if you can. It rules. And uh, uh, <laughs> I wish I could watch it right now. I'm waiting for them to announce the disc. Uh, to see uh, to see when I can get my hands on this thing. But it's about that time. We're going to spin the wheel. The Wheel of Tubi. Where we, uh, every uh, week we uh, spin the wheel. And it picks a, a Tubi movie from our list. And... Uh, that allows us to uh, to watch one movie together on the show, which uh, has become a wonderful uh, tradition here. I added a movie to the list because we we of course got rid of um, Ready to Rumble, and I wanted to add a specifically a, a black cinema movie to the to the list because uh, we haven't done a lot of that yet, and I want I want to be doing that you know uh, and focusing on on bringing a lot of that in and so uh, I added Queen and Slim Queen and Slim uh, looks pretty good I haven't seen it I'm interested in it it's got cool cover art and uh, it's fairly recent too and um, and it's on Tubi it's leaving Tubi soon so I wanted to take this opportunity to get it if we could and get it on the line and uh and, and see what we can do about uh, about watching it. So, uh, of course, it's one of ten. The other, Santa Sangre, Forbidden Planet, Runaway Train, Time Cop, Goon, We Are the Flesh, How to Plan an Orgy in a Small Town, The Sisters Brothers, Death Sport, and Queen and Slim. We're going to spin the wheel here on the Sin Everyday Podcast. So give us a minute 
and we'll all celebrate together. Hell fucking yeah. Hell yeah. The movie of the week for Tubi. I'm so excited. It is Time Cop, baby. We're watching it. I could not be more excited for this movie. I'm not going to go and watch it right now. It's late. I got to get this show up. But goddamn, am I excited to watch Time Cop uh, on Tubi this week. 30 down. 336 to go. So many weeks left in the year. Easily 49 weeks left in the year. Um, I think we're going to make it. I think we're going to get there. There's so many more movies to watch, though. Thank you for joining me, for coming along on this cinematic quest with me to watch 366 movies here in 2024. I'm going to be checking in every week. I'm going to tell you where I am, where I'm going. But if you want the links to everything, they're all in the description of this episode to get to the Instagram, to get to our um, our uh, uh, my letterboxed, uh, my email, all that stuff's in the description. But uh, other than that, I'm going to get out of here finally, let you go. <laughs> We're a little over time here, but uh, uh, I'll catch you next week. Thank you so much. And until then, sin every day.